This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. It's far too early. It's still not the Christmas holiday somehow. Um, and yeah, I feel like I'm already ready for it. I'm Tabitha McIntosh here in the breakfast slot for the next week while Mal takes a well-deserved break. And today I am talking about the GCSE first cohort turning 50 because I have turned 50. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Let's let's appreciate the drama of that start to Monday. Well, this is my most underprepared show, which fans of my deep dives into the last two hundred years of education oh will not this necessarily be expecting. And I've forgotten to press the don't move on to the next clip thing. So that's that's about what you can expect from me today, people. It's all a bit made up. I did a lot of birthday stuff yesterday. Does that mean I have a hangover? No, that would be unprofessional something like that. So the horrifying reality that I and GCSEs are really very old finally sank in yesterday when in what can only be described as some kind of war crime, perhaps history's greatest, um, the passage of time pronounced me 50 years old. And that puts me in surprisingly elite company in this country. Um, The UK has among the youngest teacher workforce in Europe and the North Atlantic, and among the lowest percentage of teachers aged 50 or over. So in addition to moving into a a new demographic of 50 plus, I think um, In the United States, you start getting mailers from the American Association of Retired People at 50. Wouldn't it be nice to retire? As apparently most British teachers over 50 have thought to themselves. Um, In addition to that, those of us born between September 1971 and August 1972 belong to another peculiarly British category. People who took GCSEs at the end of year 11, or what we used to call fifth form. So there's a lot of chatter from people, including um, the NEU and the man who introduced GCSEs himself, uh, Sir Kenneth Baker, about major assessment reform at the moment. Should we get rid of them? Should we change them? Should we do some kind of 21st century skills-based education involving, I don't know, jetpacks and critical thinking and whatnot? Um, There is an awful lot of chatter about that, including from our union about major assessment reform. So I thought I'd ask people on Edu Twitter what it was like to live through that last radical change to assessment. So I'd like us to travel magically back in time to 1988, uh, courtesy of, of Podbeam and Teachers Talk Radio. And of course, me, your beloved host, Tabitha, hashtag very old Macintosh. Um. On the 3rd of January that year, Margaret Thatcher became the longest serving UK Prime Minister of the 20th century, and she wouldn't go away for two more years. Yeah. Uh, having been in power for eight years and 244 days, fact fans. Uh, and then Stock, Aitken and Waterman were about to exert a similarly tenacious hold on power, much to the detriment of musical quality. Uh, Kylie Minogue went to number one during the exam revision period and stayed there for four or maybe five, I don't know, it seemed infinite, long weeks with the truly execrable song 
I Should Be So Lucky. Just possibly the worst song of all time. And yet it was number one. And for which I think I can probably blame the B I got in Latin. I'm sure I would have done much better without Kylie Minogue on the airwaves. As we'll discuss, my B in Latin means that something a little bit different to a B in Latin for someone done who sat the exam, say, in 2001. But anyway, also that year, um, during the run-up to exam period, Section 28 was passed in the Local Authority Act, which prevented local authorities... Uh, HB History, do I know how to change the greeting in the studio settings, I'm being asked. At the moment, it's asking us about heads of year. Uh, no, I don't, I'm afraid, Tom. But... um. I can I can pretend I'll tell you what I'll have a go when the news comes on so I'll put on Gail with our uh, Gail Glenn with our, our news education news and then mess about frantically with the technology which I'm famously good at I certainly didn't lock everyone out of the entire Podbeam account for two weeks in a row when I first started doing this so it should go really well apologies in advance um so GCSEs began being taught in September 1986 please forgive me in advance for explaining what had come before it as if you were ignorant children. But it turns out, looking at the statistics, that most of you are sort of ignorant children, while I, despite my generally youthful elan, am officially an elder teacher now. Institutional history resides in me, kids, whether you like it or not. So, quiet class, and um, I'll begin. But first, actually, I'm going to do the news while I try and follow Tom's directions for changing the greeting. Here we go. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. From 2025 in Wales, pupils will study for one Integrated Science Award, which will be worth two GCSEs rather than separate subjects. Qualifications Wales said that the new GCSE will include key aspects of biology, chemistry and physics and make it clear how they will link to each other. Dr Laurie Main Waring, academic team lead in biomedical sciences at Cardiff Metropolitan University said, I worry about the message combining these three GCSEs together will give pupils. This dumbing down, if you like, or this convergence of science, what does that tell our pupils about science? That it's maybe not as important as it should be. The one thing we have learned over the past 20 months is that science is extremely important. Without scientists all over the world, we wouldn't have had an understanding of COVID at all, and we wouldn't have a vaccine. Qualifications Wales said it was still open to the possibility of developing other made for Wales qualifications to sit alongside the new GCSE science qualification. In the week before half term, more than 3,400 children across Berkshire were absent as a result of COVID-19. Officers from West Berkshire Council 
met with head teachers on Friday and a spokesperson said, We are recommending a number of protective measures that schools could put in place going forward to reduce the risk of transmission within educational settings across the district. This includes the wearing of face coverings in certain circumstances, reducing contact and mixing between year groups where possible, and the use of testing. Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of School Leaders Union NAHT, said staff absences linked to COVID-19 was a particular concern. He added, We know schools are finding it increasingly hard to cover staff absence and in many cases they simply cannot afford the cost of so many supply teachers. At the very least, the government needs to re-establish the workforce fund that it abandoned last autumn. Without this crucial support, there is a real risk that schools will struggle to keep all classes open as we move into the winter months. Robin Walker, Schools Minister, said the country was at a pivotal point where testing and vaccination were vital to fighting the virus and protecting face-to-face -face education. This has been your daily education news briefing. One of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department of Education validated programs to help you. Read Write Incorporated Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programs and receive support from your OUP expert local education consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. One more time, that's www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Right, we were about to deep dive into the history of what came before GCSE back, back in the distant swamps of time before all of you infant teachers were, were even born, mostly. Um, I see Matt Ben-David has entered the room. Matt Ben-David is, yeah, I think I was at university before you were born, Matt. All right, so what happened before GCSE? Well, kids, let's find out. The first set of general certificate of education courses were introduced in 1951, Matt is telling me that they were born in 1992. Ah, oh, Matt, that was my second year at university. See, now that you know I'm an elder, you have to listen to all of my deranged pronouncements um, with, with great obedience and interest, just so you know. Um, they were divided into O-levels for 16-year-olds, A-levels for 18-year-olds, and this is what your new school, old school trads rave about. I'm talking your Michael Goves people. Um, for him, the 1988 switch to GCSE was the educational fall of man. Back in the golden age, when men were men, O-levels were rigorous, and homosexuality was very much illegal, education meant something. Here, 1988, we've just introduced section 28, and it's all about to fall apart with a whole new system of education. But what exactly did O-levels mean? Well, now I've put this together from a range of sources that I'll link again. So uh, 
as of 1944, all pupils received secondary education, but that's a little bit misleading because they went to different types of schools according to their results in the 11 plus. Um, the vast majority went to secondary mods. I live in a county where that's still the case, Buckinghamshire. Um, and for most of the time until really very recently, if you're as old as I am, um, the vast majority, well, first of all, it was entirely the majority of people were leaving school without any qualifications at all. And as we'll see, in the early 60s, they introduced a new qualification to capture some of those kids. So that changed a little bit, but not much, as we'll see. So the O-level was exclusively taken by pupils attending grammar school, though some plucky secondary mod teachers did enter their students for... Um, for the exam so that they had a chance of doing A-level and going to university. Um, the O-level examination was attempted, uh, intended for the top 20% of the ability range. And then the CSE, which was introduced in the early 60s, was aimed at the next 40%. So math fans, perhaps you'd like to add 20 and 40 together. And you'll find out, of course, that it comes to 60. So, ah, Sarah Barker's pointing out something there that we'll, we'll come to in a sec. Um, yeah. Only 60% of students were supposed to be leaving school with qualifications whatsoever. It was considered perfectly acceptable within education that 40% of students would leave with nothing, no usable qualifications whatsoever. Different regional authorities and local authorities had sort of like lever certificate equivalents that sort of said, you've gone to school, you have some skills and stuff. But that was a patchwork system. It wasn't consistent across the nation. And again, it was considered perfectly sensible that 40% of young people in this country should not have any qualifications whatsoever. Um, oh, somebody else is pointing out that I'm old enough to be their mother. Crucially, however, I'm not, which is good because I'm a mean and cruel mother. I'm not. I'm, I'm wonderful. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, and, and school leaving age was 15 until 1971. So, Let's go to 1971 to two, which is the year of decimalization and the year us, the first GCSE cohort, was born. Um, only 43% of students were still in school at 16 that year. 22% of young people left year 11 with five A star to C grades at O level. Um, I don't know what the results were for 2019, but they're, they're well over 60% now, right? So we've got a complete revolution that's happened during my lifetime. Again, an elder dinosaur that I am, and my lifetime is the, the new stick with which to gauge it. Um, from the history workshop, I'll read you a tiny bit of this blog. Those who believe that standards of education were higher in some previous golden age should look at the examination statistics. In 1972, 43% of students left school with no qualifications at all, and now it's less than 1%. Some argue that this means that the exams have become easier to pass, but it's hard to deny that the education of the 42% who under the old system achieved no qualifications and now get some has improved. In 1960, in a divided system, only 20% went to grammar school. The rest were more or less written off. In fact, only 16% of 16-year-olds achieved five O-level passes. In 2011, which is when a lot of this discussion was occasioned because Michael Gove um, was talking about reintroducing O-levels specifically, getting rid of GCSEs and maybe introducing a different kind of qualification. Of course, that's not what happened, but there's an enormous spate of 
of people reflecting on O-levels and CSEs and stuff um, at that point. So in 2011, 53% of pupils in the state sector achieved five or more GCSE A-star to C grades, including English and maths. Um, and that, of course, has gone up since then. So grades A to C of the new GCSE equated with the former O-level because the CSE exam was considered a completely separate qualification at a completely separate uh, grade system. So O-level was A to C, CSE was one to four. And GCSE combined them both so that theoretically an A down to a G was a pass with grades D, E, F and G still being meaningful qualifications. So you'll have this argument on Twitter. Easiest way, well, there's several easy ways to provoke an argument, but one very easy way is to say only 60% of children pass GCSE and then half of the internet will turn up to say, actually, one through three is a pass or actually D through G is a pass. Well, yes, technically that is completely correct. However, employers certainly don't consider it that way. So there were problems with the GCSE system altogether. The government was very proud in the summer of 1988 when uh, 1988, when the results came out to say 96% of children have passed. Um, but whether employers considered that a pass or not was a different question altogether. What's fascinating, however, is that in that introduction, they still very much assumed that around 40% of students would continue to leave school without a certificate. And now almost no one does. So we have an enormous amount of discussion about how the system of assessment is unfit for purpose, um, how the way we assess 16-year-olds should be considered. Maybe we shouldn't assess 16-year-olds whatsoever. But within the GCSE cohort's lifetime, we've gone to a situation where almost all students have some kind of qualifications and where 60 to 70 percent of them have five A stars to C. So really massive C change. So in 1988, the first year we got those GCSEs, 42% of entries were awarded A star to C. Um, Sarah Barker earlier brought up um, in comments here that she was the first year to sit the GCSEs that had A star. The obsession with finally slicing the top rank of ability has been part of the system since GCSEs were introduced. The anxiety has never been culturally in this country about whether or not we're giving meaningful assessment systems to the lower end of ability, but how we can make sure we're continuing to identify tiny, tiny sections of academic elite status. Um, so that's that's when the first year, that's kind of what an A meant at the time. Um, if Samuel Elliott listens to this, um, I hope he takes note of the fact that when I did GCSE, only 8% of the GCSE grades were at an A. So 8%. 69% were reported A star to C, including, right, whereas in 2011, 69% were awarded A star to C, including 22% at A or A star. That's what we mean by grade inflation. But as we'll see, it's not so much that the um, exams have got easier, so much as that our teachers have decided to start telling us how to pass them. That sounds like a big statement, but once you start talking to the GCSE cohort, you'll find out that teaching didn't used to involve sharing the specification with us or assessment objectives. A star was the top 1% at the time, Sarah's saying. Yeah. And then we have the nine introduced to pass out similar things. And then, of course, the reason why it's nine at the top is so that we can add 10 or 11 or 12 should the oiks start getting nines. Then we need to make sure we can pass that attainment 
finer and finer and finer, which has always struck me as particularly odd because children who do extremely well at exams in academia, we don't have a problem with promoting them through the system. Our system is absolutely set up for those kids to succeed. It's never been set up for the ones who are destined to leave school without qualification. Right, so what happened when GCSEs were reduced? I've got a whole huge range of comments from a variety of people talking about how that went. So how did our teachers manage the introduction? Let's find out what you guys said. Uh, Catherine Lucas points out, and I'd forgotten about this until now, that um, teachers and schools lost five occasional holidays for training and everyone called them Baker Days. So Baker Days were these despised days where, where uh, our time was taken away from our teachers, not from students. Baker Days were just fine for us. Baker Days were holidays. And they were devoted to training for the new GCSE thing. Um, Catherine's school, they decided not to call them Ken Baker because they didn't want to, to, to make him feel good by giving him whole days for himself. They're inset days now, they stayed, right? So Baker introduced those. Uh, Rachel Jenkins is saying that her father was a head of department before GCSE and left teaching the year they started because of the, the burden of having to prepare for them. He said their introduction was being rushed through, staff not given enough prep time for the new schemes, and he was not going to ask his department to do the extra workload and prep in the time given by the Department for Education or the government. Of course, they still had to do them. I will point out, Rachel, just without your dad around, which I can understand entirely. So one consequence um, of any major system of assessment reform is massive staff attrition. Um, you will get people leaving at that point, um, as we did in 1988. We will now, if assessment systems change that much. Uh, people simultaneously being overburdened with the shift in assessment, but also ideologically opposed to it, um, also just not willing to put themselves through it. Yet another factor causing um, the most precious natural resource in our educational nation, people over 50, such as myself, to leave our profession at much greater rates than they do in any other um, country in Western Europe. <laughs> that chap there is saying that teacher baking days is what their son called them. And Matt is saying my school called them in said days, just to be different. I think, I think we need to ban acronyms in education, Matt. I think the time has come to recognize that the acronyms have had their day and they should be tossed into the cruel sea along with O-levels and CSEs. <laughs> Matt is eager to ban them, but has put it in capital letters in order to torment me into imagining what that might mean. Um, Yvonne Williams says, Thatchy is, I was there. True professional freedom at the start, but by the end of the decade, stultifying key stage tests and a national curriculum that doesn't work for English, government interference with the canon, and the loss of five days holidays. We, anyone still in the profession who was teaching then really is upset about those Baker days still. They, they feel it as a scar. They're mad. They want their days back. And they're not afraid to let you know it. Um, yeah, the other thing that happened between 88 and then when my mum was training to teach in 91 was the introduction of the national curriculum, which changed an enormous amount of things. One thing about CSE exams was that the regions and teachers and schools could very much design their own curriculums that worked for their students. 
um, with GCSEs, you've got the unified system, but then you've got the nationally mandated central top-down curriculum about what needs to be there. Fascinating role that Shakespeare starts playing at that point where Shakespeare becomes mandatory. You have to study Shakespeare at all key stages in order to get your British Brussels sprouts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sarah Barker saying when I was in year nine in 1993, schools boycotted SATs. And my mum, if you talk to her about SATs, she said um, they loved them the first year they were introduced because they massively increased their GCSE English pass rate because year nine SATs were just GCSE exams, small GCSE exams. So Key Stage 3 ended up being very, very driven um, preparation for GCSE exams and then another two years of GCSE exams. So that might be one reason why the pass rate had shot up from 40% in 1988 to nearly 60 um, five years later, right? Horror stories, however. So that kind of assessment, enormous and striking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Sarah, Sarah's saying about that strike, they walked into an empty gym and had to sit without papers on the desk because it was a boycott. So they were, they were called in to perform the teacher's direct action. That's a form of education, Sarah, in uh, labor history. <laughs> yeah, my dad was in the NUT at the time and he used to break picket lines um, because he had a the commitment to educating children. He was he taught year seven at the time. Of course, year seven was um, primary school at that point. Uh, right. So some horror stories, because we all have horror stories. Our poor teachers. So 1985, they teach O-level. 1986, they're teaching the new GCSE spec. And not all of them were prepared to do that. So one of our oldest teachers, Mrs. Ward, who longtime listeners of the show will remember that I've mentioned Mrs. Ward before, our history teacher, for our first year of GCSE, year 10, <clears throat> she hadn't got the memo about the change to the spec. So Mrs. Ward, we were next to the um, staff room that year. And Mrs. Ward would say on the regular, uh, girls, I have to go get a throat lozenge go to the staff room and come back reeking of cigarettes and, and some throat lozenge. Mrs. Ward, her version of GCSE history was just O-level history. And it involved us sitting down in our desks at the same time, every lesson, getting out our books and pens, and then being dictated to for an entire year. Um, occasionally, we'd have a giddy fit of excitement where she'd say, Get out your colouring crayons, girls. We're going to do the scramble for Africa. Um, and then we'd colour in a map. But that was it. So she taught us that. And as far as I know, we weren't examined on anything she taught us. Um, not at all. And if we had been examined of it on it, I would have been at a loss because it was so boring that my friend Catherine and I began a competition early in year 10 to try and write as small as possible like since we would but what else was there to do this will amuse us so that in the end i had got down to being able to write 10 lines of dictated text in between each ruled line <laughs> on a4 paper so i wish i still had those but yeah the one of the reasons why why i'm dubious about neo-trad approaches to silent classrooms is I vividly remember what it was like um, in very silent classrooms with everyone working very hard. We just wanted to die. Uh, but 
Then we got uh, Mrs. Nathan the next year, the glamorous Mrs. Nathan, Marilyn Nathan, absolutely wonderful woman who had was actually instrumental and involved in the design of History GCSE. And suddenly it was a whole new world. We'll come to those first years of History GCSE because they are notorious and a little bit odd, the coursework component, but certainly actually the specification, which made a nice change from Mrs. Ward's reading to us of the notes she'd taught for the last 20 years. Um, Lisa Carden, who I was at college with, she was at a comprehensive in a small Cheshire town. I think she said for one exam, the they changed specifications three times in the, the run up to the 1988 actually sitting the exam. And in that crazy shift to assessment, she said, um, we were asked to submit every piece of paper in a poly pocket. How could everyone at a large comprehensive in a small Cheshire town have the money. It was different back in the day, young whippersnappers. There wasn't a WH Smith in every town. We didn't have Polly Pockets coming out of our departmental cupboards and ears. Uh, this stuff was hard to come by. And yeah, a lot of us did 100% coursework for English. We did 50%. Um, that was the grammar school holding on to exam standards girls. But 100% coursework, that's a lot of Polly Pockets and a lot of class time, and an awful lot of teachers having to learn to use new assessment systems, which, as we'll see, didn't necessarily work out very well. As Nikki Clayton says, I clearly remember getting two Bs in English and being gutted, but we had to resubmit half of our assignments in a few days because what we had done didn't meet the spec. So you were talking maybe 10 pieces of work, written work in control conditions, everything from creative writing to essays on 19th century novels to diary entries, writing to persuade, all of that nonsense. Um, all of it having to be rewritten and submitted, presumably in, in Lisa's hated Polly Pockets. Uh, Sandra Fox says that she felt my teachers were unsure of what they were teaching. There was no intervention. There were no practice papers. The onus was on the student to revise. Uh, she remembers some coursework for English. That's going to come up again and again that onus on the student to revise, but literally no guidance on what that might mean or what we were supposed to revise. I remember, says JLY, we got halfway through the school year before the English department realized we were studying the wrong text. That must have been fun. I'd love to be that department manager. So another reason maybe why an awful lot of older teachers left the profession at that point is the impossibility Knowing that you're doing your students down, knowing that you aren't teaching to the, to the top of the spec or any of the spec or what the spec is or how to pass the spec or anything at all. Again, little wonder that only 42% of us got A to C that year. Um, Catherine Robbins said, until reading this, I'd forgotten that the very first GCSE exam was geography. And the first question about a grid reference was not on the map in the exam paper. We all put our hands up at once. <laughs> and then I love this one. The German listening exam was set in a noisy cafe. Our teacher started the exam by telling us not to cry. <laughs> now, uh, our, um, our French oral, I got an A in French GCSE. Again, only 9% of people got A's in any of their exams in that year. I have no idea how I got an A in French. I wasn't particularly good at it, except I think it had something to do with the listening portion of the exam, because there we have that, that German listening exam in a noisy cafe. Ours, there were two of them, 
One of them was a pair of people talking about hot air ballooning. <laughs> now, the problem with hot air ballooning is that no one, no one, that's not standard vocabulary that you teach 15 and 16 year olds, you know, let's go air ballooning. Um, but so they were talking about Le Montgolfier, Le Montgolfier, Le Montgolfier. And I, because I'm a big old nerd, knew that the Montgolfier brothers had invented the hot air balloon. So I guessed it was a hot air balloon. Like apparently only 9% of children in 1988. So I got an A. Now the second one was even better. And I like to think this was part of the making education hip for the young people. It was, <laughs> it was set on a train and it was a drug deal. So sometimes I think I hallucinated this, but I didn't. Um, so it involved people talking about la cocaine um, and how they were dealing la cocaine. So, yeah. Ah, GCSE. Fun times. Let's see. Um, let's see what people have been saying. Oh, God. Treasury tags. So many treasury tags. Well, treasury tags were our haunted us up until the the late teens didn't they i despise treasury tags and can never quite work out how to use them i'm i'm a teacher like those poor students who also can't work out how everybody else in the class has treasury tagged their assessments folders together and and i and and some poor benighted student are still attaching the wrong thing backwards and, and weeping with frustration um someone with a string of of letters and numbers so i won't try and pronounce that says I went to primary school in 1971 and had to cope with ITA. Uh, <laughs> now, I missed ITA because luckily I was born in 1971 instead of going to primary. But my, my first boyfriend had done ITA. ITA fan, uh, kids, this an exciting, deranged moment in education, truly among the worst ideas in the history of the world. Um, decided English is very hard to learn because the phonics don't work very well. We think that children should learn through phonics. That would be a really good idea, as we all agree now. Largely synthetic phonics is, is you know, overwhelmingly the way we teach reading in this country. But the way they decided to hack it in the early 70s was by inventing an entirely new spelling system, um, orthographic system to represent the sounds in English and teaching children that. And then, and only then, teaching them to read actual English. So, so that worked very well for people like my first boyfriend who were, you know, found reading very easy, but, but not so well for lots of people who, who had a very hard time shifting from the entirely made up spelling system that for some unaccountable reason, we had taught the nation's youngest and most vulnerable students. Ah, bad ideas in education. That must probably be the high watermark. Uh, yeah, also having to learn new money when none of your family knew it. Oh, you must have been an ambassador for decimalization. Exciting. Did O-levels and love school. My brother did CSEs and love school. This is still letters and numbers person. Started teaching in 1988 and had to teach GCSE. So yeah, you've you've taught and studied and been across this huge shakeup and experimentation in the way we understand the most material aspects of life as well as the more interesting ones. <laughs> yeah, Matt is saying my GCSE Latin teacher taught us the wrong set text. This wasn't an issue that went away with time. Well, there are always teachers who teach the wrong text, but you know, in 1988, 1986, 1988, the, the risk of that happening was very, very high. 
Sarah Barker saying in English for the spec I did, you could choose any two novels in the world to compare. Any two. Can you imagine the stress for the teacher? <laughs> ah. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you're just not going to read those texts, are you? So, so an enterprising student can just make up two novels. In my, I had a student do that in a mock exam a couple of years ago for the anthology poetry question. They hadn't bothered to revise any anthology poetry. They had the one in front of them. So I was reading through this essay and the kid kept saying, you know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning addresses the poet, the poem, the sonnet 43 to her husband. Whereas in my poem, they would quote a poem. And I was like, I don't, I don't recognize this poem. <laughs> And I didn't recognize it because the child had made it up on the spot. It's quite a fascinating poem. It dwelt more on the physical aspects of love than the emotional ones. <laughs> ah, in the GCSE oral, Sarah sang, our French teacher pointed behind her for past tense, forward for the future. Oh, God. And into her lap for the present tense. That's terrifying, Sarah. Maybe that's the embodied cognition that people are talking about so much lately. Yeah, they wrote their own poem, Sarah. Just, <laughs> it was a corker. It had rhyming and everything. Uh, Jack, Jack Coll is saying, my favorite, favorite experience from GCSE, and I believe this is what we call irony kids, was getting an A star in my coursework in graphics. And then on results day, getting an overall E because teachers were guessing what was in the test rather than being secure that the test was a reflection of the content they've taught for the last three years. This happened to my brother, but I have to say I'm on the side of the exam board rather than my brother here. Um, my brother, who went to a grammar school, uh, he did design and technology GCSE. So he was three years after me, but they were teachers still very much learning the ropes of the new spec. And he built his own electric guitar. And his teachers were astonished and amazed. And they assessed it like 100% amazing. Now, this electric guitar looked like a wooden brick with um, with, <laughs> with some wire attached to it. And it was about as playable as a wooden brick with four strings attached to it. And when the moderators saw it, I'm afraid his grade disappeared. Usson les neige d'antan and the grade of my brother. Uh, Kit Andrew saying that you know, they suddenly went from an A to a C in English Lit coursework because teachers didn't understand the moderation or the expectations. <clears throat> so the exam, therefore, took on an extra sharp focus. Um, but he went into biology knowing it pretty much got a C already due to practicals. Genuinely bemused throughout, parents clueless. That keeps coming up again and again. Someone was saying they had... Um, you know, very bright parents, like say my grandparents were incredible. Well, especially my grandfather was incredibly bright. Sorry to diss my mother, uh, grandmother early on a, a Monday morning, but didn't have any qualifications. Had left school at 14. So, you know, so not only did they not understand the new GCSEs, they'd never done any form of qualification. And as the statistics show us, that was true for an enormous number of, of parents of, of the young people doing exams. So, Teachers didn't tell us what to do. Teachers didn't know what to do. And our parents didn't know what to do either. It was a wild time to be alive. Uh, Mal, who, who is, of course, uh, the queen of Mal CPD, says, uh, apart from my history and English teachers, there seemed to be a lot of confusion. I remember my mates who did geography suddenly being told they had to do some coursework. <laughs> Late in the fifth form, year 11, 
like oh no there's coursework again those are the kind of things that make a person quit the profession <laughs> when you suddenly realize that you had to do coursework and you haven't got any time for it sarah's going now physical coding she's talking about the teachers the present french tense is in my lab <laughs> see you later sarah uh ruthie is saying the year my year and the year below did the quickly shelved double science award absolute nightmare I remember staff being in tears because they no longer had time to teach us, only tell us. Um, a lot of people are saying that they had teachers who openly hated it and told them about it. But one of the things I'd like to um, go over here, because like I, I think I said earlier on, every single person, we're all bad at remembering back our education. I think, you know, there's a lot of valid discussion about we don't remember learning. We Good learning just happens in the background. But, but we do remember exam practice and guidance, whether or not we got any. Um, uh, and we didn't, we didn't get any at all. So Chris Eyre here says, one teacher openly told us that they didn't understand or like the new GCSEs. One teacher changed exam boards at the end of year 10. We never saw any specs or had much in the way of exam techniques or strategies. Uh, Chris Wiskin says, in agreement, I never knew, never saw a past paper or knew what a specification looked like throughout my school years. I genuinely thought that the teachers just rocked up and taught us cool things that they liked. <laughs> the idea that it made sense and followed a logical pathway never occurred to me. All you people thinking about the curriculum deep dives now that is the absolute obsession um, with both Ofsted and every single school in the nation. Yeah, we didn't used to think about curriculums. As Sarah said, you could just pick books, just any books, do them. Who knows? Well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Zoe Enser, a longtime contributor to the show, says, I don't think we even have mocks. I never saw a spec or even a course outline. And mark schemes were for teachers. You can pull the mark schemes. Cambridge Assessment has a beautiful collection of O-level um, and GCSE historical papers and examiners comments for for the last well for as long as the qualifications have been there um but that didn't make it into the classroom and in fact i remember zoe saying when she started teaching in the late 90s and david didow saying when he started teaching in the late 90s they weren't really shown the specs um we weren't spec and assessment objective driven at that point uh jen gibbons says my history teacher told us what type of questions would be on the exam about a week before the exam. We never did any exam practice at all. <laughs> Carol Atherton says, well, we have mocks, but not a clue about the course outline or the mark schemes. I found one of my old GCSE essays a while back. Tick, 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 17 out of 20, V good, with no idea what was V good about it or how I could have made it better. Even at A-level, um, all the, the teaching of, um, of how to pass an English literature A-level that we got was, I just happened to be really good at English, largely as a result of just reading continually. God knows how I learned to write essays, but I, I just I happened to be quite good at it. So our entire class instruction time and what a good essay should be would be the teacher reading my essays out for two years. <laughs> Everyone hated me. Good times. So, And they would never give you four marks. They didn't believe in it. They'd be like, mm, 17 out of 20. Very, very good. 
What do I do to get a 20? No, there is no 20. We don't believe in 20. There's still part of me that that doesn't believe in full marks because I was raised in a system that thought that full marks was just tacky and offensive for so long. Um, Chris Hillage says, I was the first year of GCSE 2. I remember teacher strikes meant days off school that year. So teacher strikes and Baker days and Kylie Minogue all in one heady brew. Um, as others have said, zero school-led exam prep. Study leave from May half term with just your books to revise from. And then he did well, but A-levels in maths, chemistry and biology were a big step up. That's going to be a consistent theme too. The new GCSE specs didn't necessarily prepare people for the A-level, shift to A-level at all whatsoever. Uh, Catherine Lucas replying to that said, I think the strikes, uh, she only remembers striking for a couple of days little bit salty there, uh, were over implementation without proper training. So they took five days of holiday off us. So the Baker days were a response to the strike days. Um, yeah, very productive strike, she says. Louise Hunter says she did 100% coursework in English. And then this is lovely. All those likely to get C or above were taken to one side and told to produce a revision timetable. <laughs> no actual help on how to revise, just make a timetable. And then some were advised to take lower papers to guarantee getting a C. That is, of course, the foundation tier, which, you know, there will be teachers coming into education who live in a world where there wasn't a foundation paper for GCSE, right? Because we got rid of those in, in 2015. That's terrifying. We're also old people, not just me, all of you are getting old too. Uh, but yeah, so, so your teachers would arbitrarily decide that you just weren't good enough. To, to get above a C. So there'll be a ceiling capped on your ability to go higher. Um, I once, as a TA LSA with a, an autistic kid, I should anonymize this because it's evidence of exam malfeasance of some kind. But um, for his physics GCSE, I had to go sit in a room. He was allowed someone to essentially poke him when um, he wasn't concentrating, you know, I was a prompter. And I brought the paper with me and he sat the paper and everything was fine. And then the paper was submitted and I'd given him the upper tier paper, the higher paper by mistake. It had been handed to me, but he was supposed to sit the foundation tier, did not sit the foundation tier. And guess what? Got an A star. So there was a lot wrong with the foundation system, um, including this clandestine, almost religious conclave of teachers who would then come out and tell you which which foundation you were going to. Kate Victoria, um, that's her name. She spells her name backwards on Twitter. I was that year. AA, BB, four C's and an E in typing. I didn't know you could do a typing GCSE. Bring back typing GCSE. That's what I say. Um, things have moved on loads. My kids learn how to revise now and how to retrieve. We were just told to revise. So Kate's technique was to walk around and around the garden practicing quotations. Uh, what was the impact on A-level? Is there still a foundation paper? There's not an English map. Anyway, uh, impact on A-levels. The first GCSE in our school was geography. Can't remember which board. The first question asked for the grid reference that wasn't on the map. Um, she sat an RE O-level the previous year that was all rote learning. GCSEs seemed more relevant. And they weren't all bad, despite the fact it was total chaos. Um, but there was a huge gap in our learning for A-levels. Our clutterbuck says um, that they're the same academic year as me, started A-levels, and 
remember being told we had to spend the first eight weeks being taught the O-level content we'd need as they hadn't adjusted the A-level curriculum. Um, and then Nikki Bat says, that was me for French A-level, except it was all of lower sixth for O-level content. Remember from my French oral, we were all studying cocaine distribution and, and obscure methods of air transportation, which was no help for A-level whatsoever. Uh, Fiona O'Neill says, same, same here, from loving French and getting a B at GCSE, sank and failed at A-level completely. So again, one of the big issues with such a radical shift in assessment is that every part of the system needs to be prepared for that shift in assessment. And it very much was not in 1988 with that experimental cohort and the experimental cohorts for the next couple of years before the systems were sorted out. <coughs> I'd like to come to the GCSE history empathy essay. Um, perhaps the most grotesque misstep in, in history education, I'll save that only for the introduction of ITA. Now, what they did with history is they wanted coursework. That's great. And for a few years there, what they decided they wanted us to do was to empathize with the historical past. Instead of experiencing it as a set of facts, um, they wanted us to really step into the shoes of the people of the past and to demonstrate that by writing creative pieces pretending to be historical people now some of the people who've who replies to me on twitter to say they'd done that in the 90s they'd had you know they were a mill worker in their empathy piece but my history gcse once we'd lost the o-level teacher and got the um got the shiny new gcse mrs nathan teacher we had a, our entire GCSE was about um, atrocities and revolution, uh, as so many GCSEs continue to be for years. So it's French Revolution, Chinese Revolution, um, build up to the First World War, build up to the Second World War. So our empathy essays asked us to empathize with very, very bad things. Now, Mrs. Nathan, our amazing history teacher, so I still adore to this day, she was the first, first challenging teacher I'd ever had. She she was truly amazing. She really saw us and she was really, really good at what she did. She wasn't just reading out work from books like uh, everybody who'd been there to teach O-level. She was a GCSE specialist. She was also the only Jewish person in the school, not just the only Jewish teacher, but the only Jewish student. Um, she'd come from London, off to Zone 9, Buckinghamshire. She was the only Jewish person and she had to oversee this classroom of Buckinghamshire Girls Grammar Schools, writing an essay which went like this. Imagine you were a German shopkeeper in 1933, 1936, and 1939. How do you feel about Hitler? So, of course, what we had to do was uh, replicate the rising tide of anti-Semitism in our creative writing pieces, whilst also somehow reflecting a range of views across the political and social spectrum. And then my poor isolated Jewish teacher had to sit and read the worst bile imaginable. And the worse the bile, the higher the grade. Um, the second piece we did, uh, I remember this one because my piece, Mrs. Nathan took off to um, one of the GCSE board moderating sessions and they decided it was more akin to literature than a uh, history and really was of too high a standard for, at least that's what she told me. She might've been lying. And that was about, it was imagine you were at Finland Station in 1918, waiting for 17, 17, 
please don't kill me, Mrs. Nathan. Imagine you were at Finland Station in 1917 waiting for Lenin to return and join the revolution. How do you feel? <laughs> the, the thing that made the empathy essay so insane was that you had to show that you understood a range of opinions. So, so mine, I believe, was I was obviously very pro-Lenin. Come on, guys. I was 15 and it was the Thatcher years. Of course, I was a crazed Leninist. Um, mine was all about the, the inspirational red flags and the hope that was coming on the train in Finland Station and uh, revolution now and stuff. But you also had to say, like, whereas my cousin Vanya is a filthy running dog capitalist in the service of the bourgeoisie. And she thinks the Mensheviks might be all right. It was deeply awkward and, and it was gotten rid of in a few years. Um, on the plus side, some people liked the new GCSEs. As I said, the teaching was really very different, much more challenging, required us to think a lot more, at least in English and history. And a Savage Vampire Princess, shout out for the username there, said, I did much better with the new GCSE. It suited my way of working and I liked coursework, so I did well. We had 100% literature coursework, so read loads of novels, plays and poetry, and assessments were only 400 words long. Today, the curriculum has narrowed right down, which is a shame. I think um, the phrase that always comes up when we think about this period is um, survivor bias, right? Those of us who read widely and enjoyed reading and whose teachers could manage such a chaotic new system would have found that brief period of total chaos really rewarding. You know, it rewarded uh, intensely wide and eclectic reading. <clears throat> and then the national curriculum got introduced and everything became slightly more sane. Um, although, as Sarah said, still doing that stuff in the early 90s. But that doesn't really, um, there's no safety net there for, for kids who don't enjoy reading. Um, there's no accountability system and moderation and standardization gets very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, Matt Benderfeed is just having a go. Uh, yeah, exactly. What if you're a Jewish student in 1988 having to write that? So my shop has been taken off me. My family is starving. The worst possible kind of, you know, someone had on Twitter the other day that their, their child had been asked to, they'd been doing Anne Frank and they'd asked their children to hide under the desk with torches and imagine that they were trapped in an attic waiting for the German soldiers. We just don't do that anymore. When when schools do things like that, then they they get roasted on social media and, and go away and think about what they've done. But here we had an entire nation being encouraged to think that way. Uh, Giles Meehan says, it was that brief time when our English language and lit GCSEs were both 100% coursework. I never would have gotten A's if I had to write exams or anything from scratch, or if I'd had to remember any quotations let alone a dozen poems. Um, again, those of us who did well under that system, and let's remember, 42% only getting A to C. Um, it was great for us. There was an enormous amount of reading, um, a really huge, eclectic range of reading. We read everything from far to the madding crowd to I can't remember anything else we did, so I don't know why I set the sentence up that way. But um, not many of us passed. So for all of us, you know, hailing our own weird golden time of like 1988 to 1991, um, it wasn't that golden for most people. All right. And that is about it for um, <laughs> for the contributions so far. Um, someone asked a very sensible question about, well, what has happened? Can we track what has happened 
to that particular cohort. The ones who sat exams in 1987 and left with, with CSEs versus O-levels and what has happened to the 1988 cohort. Well, we certainly know what's happened with university entrance. So at the beginning of the decade, only something like 10%, around about 10% of people um, were going to university. And of course, by the time we get into the 90s, that, that number is skyrocketing, especially with the 1992 transformation of polytechnics into universities. Um, and then the further emphasis on the Blair years to a point where it's near 50%. Um, which is a radical transformation. So I think I'd like in the last minute, if I'm going to tell you to think about something, um, this is not what I expected to say, but I would say those people who are most loud in favour of assessment reform, who are most in favour of getting rid of GCSEs, who most consider the entire assessment system at 16 not fit for purpose, should step back maybe a little and look about how far we've come in terms of actually leaving children leaving school with meaningful qualifications um, or any qualifications at all or carrying on to 18 which happened while I was in LSA or going to university these are all distinct improvements the only way to not understand the, them as an improvement is to pull the kind of old school Govian trick and say it's all just because it's gotten easier. I hope if you've taken away anything from today, what you've taken away is that one of the reasons why grades have inflated is because people bother to teach us how to pass exams now. And they didn't used to. It just didn't matter. All right, everyone. I am 50 years old and I am leaving now slightly early. And thank you very much for hanging around and, um, and, and talking with me this morning. Bye, guys. I'll see you next week. And in exciting news, um, Mal has offered me the regular seven o'clock slot on Mondays. So I won't just be temporarily replacing her. I'll be taking over, which is nice because let me tell you, having done a couple of weeks at um, nine o'clock, none of you are listening. You're all in school. So selfish. All right. Bye, everyone. See you next week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.